0: Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter four. To Galatians chapter four. We're seeing what happens the moment a person receives Jesus into their hearts. You think about it. You don't really feel this. You really don't feel it. You're not aware of that. You just know your desperation and you cry out to God. And there is a change immediate in your heart. But sometimes it takes a while for us to fathom what actually took place the moment we receive the Lord Jesus as our personal Savior. How awesome it is to know that we learned in chapter 3, at the very moment of receiving Him, we become sons of God. Look at verse 26. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. At that very moment, at that very moment, when we become sons of God, when we receive him into our hearts, we are baptized into Christ. We are totally immersed into his power, his passion, his presence, everything about him. He is in us, we are in him. We are immediately clothed with the garment of his righteousness. That's an amazing thing. If you didn't know it from Scripture, you wouldn't perhaps understand that. Paul says in verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is what Peter tells us in, in in his epistle. He says, we have been given everything for life and for godliness. It's all in Christ. And it was all received the moment that we were saved. Just think about it. Believers are instantly one with a huge family that is worldwide. It doesn't matter what race you are, what color skin you have. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Paul says in verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And the word Greek there refers to all the nations on earth aside from Israel. It doesn't matter you're from Israel, from any nation on this earth. You are one together. You receive the same thing. All of us have become sons. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. He says there's neither slave nor free man. What a message to preach to those who don't have anything physically but can have everything spiritually. That's what happens the moment a person receives Jesus Christ. Not only that, it doesn't matter if you're male or if you're female. It doesn't matter. A male and a female, they receive the same thing. That's his point, that we become one. It says it neither, there is neither male nor female. And then he says, for you are all whether you're rich, poor, no matter what race you are, no matter whether you're male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, I love that phrase, if you belong to Christ. The moment you receive Jesus into your heart, you become his. Does that bless you like it blesses me? We used to sing that little chorus, I am his and he is mine. It's wonderful to know that he is mine, but to realize that I'm his. That's the beauty. We belong to him. This is what Paul said to the Corinthian church when he says, no, you're not. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. Did you think you were your own? Do you think you can live like you want Oh No, no. You're his property now, and you have the privileges of sonship. I love that phrase. I'm reading a book right now called The Majuba House written by a friend of ours, Joyce Brogdon. She's in her 70s, and she sent it to me to preview it. And sometimes, uh, if, the, if the book doesn't have a lot of pictures, I don't like to read it. But this is a good book. It was an autobiography, really, of her life growing up in pre-war, World War II, England, West Haven, England. She was in an orphanage early on, and then they finally sent her to a family to which really made her feel like she belonged. The family's name was Saunders. And they lived in a place called the Majuba House. One side of the house was a shop. The other side was the home. And it was a beautiful story. story of a father who took her in as if he's her, as she was her, his own daughter. And how he loved her and sat by the fire and tell her stories and just make her feel that sense of belonging. Every day she came home from school, he had been crippled. And she could see him in the window looking for her to come home. And the mama who would sew her clothes and fix her meals and always made her feel that sense of Belonging. That's where Paul's headed here. We belong to Him. We're sons of God. We're one with the family of God. We're dressed in His robe of righteousness. He says, if you belong to Him. Literally, it's if you are Christ's in a possessive sense. If you belong to Him. He says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to. promise now in chapter 3 he talked about inheritance but in chapter 4 he's going to talk about being an heir heirs according to promise to be an heir you have to be a member of the family now we've already established that because the moment you receive Jesus you are sons of God you're his you belong to him you're in the family you were not naturally born into that family you were supernaturally born into that family but to be an heir you have to be a member of the family my mama When she died, my daddy died when I was 23 in 1966, and my mother died in 1981. When she died, she didn't have very much. We had everything as far as a family would be concerned in the sense of love and those type of things, but she didn't have very much to will to her two children. I have a sister who's three years younger than I am. But what we did get, we basically used to pay the funeral cost, and that's kind of the way it was. But there were many things that she had that she gave to us and I still have them. Uh, it's beautiful to know that you're in the family and that you can inherit from somebody who paid a dear price for you to be born. It's a beautiful thing to be an heir, to be an heir. But when you compare that to being an heir of the promise, he says you're heirs according to the promise. Now, we have to, what he's doing here is showing you that what was promised to Abraham And to his seed, we become heirs of all of that. We're heirs according to the promise. According to all the spiritual blessings that we have in salvation and in Christ. We're heirs according to that. What was promised to Abraham, if you put it simply, is justification by faith. Salvation. He was justified by faith. That was passed on to his seed. And his seed, as Galatians 3.16 says, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And in salvation comes all the promises of God. We become heirs of all of that. I don't know if that blesses you, but that really blesses me. I don't have to ask him for something that's already mine. I have to learn to say yes to him so that I can appropriate that in my life. I don't ask him for patience. He is patience in my life. I don't have to ask him for joy. He is the source of my joy. When I bow before him, when I'm willing to live by faith, as we've been seeing all the way through chapter 1 of Galatians, then what happens is I I enter into the joy. I enter into the, the fulfillment of the promises that are mine in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says it in a very different way, but I think a very powerful way. He says, for as many as are the promises of God. And I love that. He doesn't tell you how many there are. As many as there are. I mean, you can't begin to number them. In him, Christ, the seed promised to Abraham, they are yes. They're yes. Therefore, also through him, Christ is our amen to the glory of God Through us, I'll tell you what, folks, if we just understood this morning who we are and whose we are and what we have in him, it would just blow us away. But what happened to the Galatians was that they walked away from that beautiful truth. Now, all of this is in direct contrast. Paul has been building his case. He's like a lawyer in a courtroom. And he's been putting on one side what the law offered, which is nothing more than condemnation, cannot produce salvation, cannot give you the Spirit of God. He's already told us that. It does have a role. It does have a role. But then he puts on the other side what Christ offers us. He in no way is referring here by the statement that you're heirs according to the promise because you're spiritual descendants of Abraham. He's not talking about the physical promises given to Abraham. He's not talking about the land. He's not talking about the nation. He's talking about the spiritual things that are promised in Christ Jesus. You see, God sent his son into this world. The son of God became the son of man as we'll see in a little bit. And he came through that nation that God had given, promised to Abraham. We're on the other side of that. We, we get to receive the spiritual promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. Now, in chapter 4, Paul wants, us to, to, wants to illustrate the spiritual immaturity of people like the Galatians who go back up under the old performance mentality of religion. When they'd rather live by a set of rules than they would walk in the relationship they can have with the Father. It's a beautiful thing he does here. You see, by going back under the law, the Galatians not only did a stupid thing, remember the word foolish in chapter 3 verse 1 can be translated stupid. It's, it's an interesting word. And I don't know about you, but I do stupid things. I don't do dumb things. I know too much to do dumb things. Dumb things is when you don't know any better. Stupid things is when you know better and you do it anyway. And The Galatians did a stupid thing. Not only did they do a stupid thing by going back up under religion, they did an intensely Immature thing. You see, we don't think about it that way. We think religion is maturity. Oh, no. It's, a, it's gross immaturity, is what it is. And he's going to show us that right here. I want you to think about this as you walk through this life, as you choose to do things your way, how immature and childish you've become. When we can walk in the adult sons of God, as the adult sons of God, when we can live in maturity, if we'll just simply learn to relate to him and walk by faith. This is your contrast. This is what Paul is trying to show us. Well, first thing, there are three things here. First of all, Paul makes a comparison, and this comparison is awesome. Verse 1, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, although he is owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In verse three, he says, so also we, he's making a comparison. That's what so also we means. He's taking something from their cultural background that they understand, and he's comparing it with a spiritual truth that he's trying to teach to Galatian believers, so also we. He's simply explaining again, the difference of being under law and being in Christ. In verse one, he says again, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave although he is owner of everything. There was at some age in every culture that a young boy became a man. He entered through that rite of passage. And it was a beautiful thing, and it was a cultural thing, and they understood this language. For instance, in the Roman world, when a ceremony was held for a young lad to become a man, it was called the toga virilis. And it was a very special celebration when the young boy was no longer an immature child. He had entered into adulthood. In the Jewish world, the same ceremony for young boys was held when they were twelve years old, and it was called the Bar what? Bar mitzvah. You already know that, because it still goes on even today. The day finally came, known as that Bar mitzvah. It was a day that the young boy would now celebrate his adulthood, his manhood. It was observed on the first Sabbath after his twelfth birthday. At that time, the boy's father would pray, Blessed be thou, O God who hath taken from me the responsibility of this boy. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I needed to pray that for Stephen when he was four years old. But I, blessed be God, you have taken off of me the responsibility of this boy. The young boy would pray this prayer back. Oh, my God and God of my father, On this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear responsibility of my actions towards thee. In Greece, the boy would have to wait until he was 18 years old. At the age of 18, a celebration was held, and the boy at that time was called an ephebos. It's kind of like a young cadet. For the next two years, he would have a special responsibility to his family, to his city, to his country. Uh, it's kind of like it is in Switzerland even today. You, you automatically, at a certain time, go into the military for two years. It's not an option of a draft or a volunteer signing up. It's automatic that every young man does that. His hair would be cut off. I think we've adopted some of that in our military. I remember when I went to military school and they shaved my head to the skin It would be cut off, and that hair would be taken and given to the god, or Greek god, little g, Apollo. When the Romans held their ceremonies, it was so sad, the children would bring their toys and their dolls. little boys would bring their toys, the little girl would bring their dolls, and they would sacrifice them to the gods. And it was symbolic of relinquishing their childhood. So with this cultural practice in mind, they know what he's talking about immediately. Paul says in verse 1, as long as the heir is a child. Now, the word child there is "nepios." We've seen that in, in weeks before us. It's, the, it's a child without any understanding. It's a baby. It's somebody that has to be carried around, can't talk, can't walk. It's the word used when Paul was upset with the church of Corinth who had chosen to go back into immaturity, and he called them your babies in Christ. You just won't grow up. That's the word there. This would be immediately understood in their culture. Paul adds, now as I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not suffer at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. He does not differ at all from a slave. He is owner of everything. Even though a young boy was going to inherit the whole estate, when he had not gone through the rite of passage, he was no different than a slave. He had to live under the rules that were administered by other people. Paul says in verse 2, He's under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. The term guardian was a term that referred to slaves hired by the Father to make certain that the, 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 the children were taken care of, that they got to school on time, that they ate their meals the right way. It's very much like the word tutors that we saw in chapter 3 the law became a tutor to lead us to Christ then the word managers is the word economos, which was the manager of a household he's the guy that made sure everything took place you eat at this time you go to bed at this time you eat this kind of food you don't eat that kind of food you go to school at this time you do your homework at this time you dress this way you wear this you don't wear that and he had to live under that until he went through the rite of passage then he was an adult then he could choose to live a different way he lived this way until the date that was set by the father the young boy was under control until a certain day that could only be determined by his father now this was going on every day in their culture in galatia and paul wanted to recall them to this practice so he could make his illustration he lays the principle of the practice of a child becoming an adult did you know this and i bet you might not have known it i don't want to bet i'm not a betting person but i Yeah, I bet you. I bet you didn't know this. (laughs) In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And on one side, he shows you the immaturity of when he was a Pharisee, when he was under religion. And then he brings in his spiritual coming of age, and he talks about his salvation. Well, in verse 3, Paul says, so also we. Here comes, the, here comes the connection now. He's making a comparison. It's very clear. Here comes the connection. So also we. While we were children, he goes on to say, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. I don't know if you ever thought about it or not, but salvation is releasing you from a bondage. Before we became believers, we were held under the elemental things of the world just like those children that were kept under guardians and managers why because they were too immature to make their own choices they had to be told what to do they had to have a set of rules it governed their behavior that governed the way that they thought now Paul's enlarging on on what he's taught in chapter 3 you have to be real careful with this passage the illustrations that are physical and tangible in scripture can never fully and adequately explain a spiritual truth remember that don't try to read too much into the physical Listen to what he says is the spiritual application. Remember back in chapter 3 and verse 22, he's already built upon this. He says, but the scripture has shut all men up under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. All Gentiles, all Jews, no matter. Gentiles had their own pagan religion. The Jews had their system, a Mosaic system. But whatever system you were under, he's going to refer to that and show how immature religion is, no matter what it is in this world, compared to the adult privileges we can have in Christ Jesus by trusting him by faith. So also we, he says, verse 3, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. The word elemental there is the word stokean, stokean. Uh, Stochian means the ABCs of something. It's a basic set of rules that determines behavior and begins to frame conduct and morality. Now, what's he referring to? Many people wonder what these ABCs are. There are a lot of opinions, but I think if you'll let scripture speak for itself, it tells you what it is. ABCs, he speaks of here, is religion of any form, any form, any shape. Look down in verse 9 of chapter 4, and he uses the same term and defines what he's talking about. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless, notice how he categorizes them, elemental things, Stokhian, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And he goes on to explain it's clear as a bell what he's talking about why would you go back up under this old immature system called religion when you can walk in the adult privileges of being a mature son of god why is it that you would want to do that you see on one side there's a relationship on the other side there's a religion in the gentile world religion and philosophy were carefully brought together and whatever system that was it had its own set of rules in the jewish world It involved a system of rabbinic teaching, whatever it is. He says religion of any kind, be it Islam, be it Buddhism, be whatever it is, you put it over here. It's for the immature that need a set of rules, and it does not save you in any way, shape, or form. It's got some good points to it. For instance, religion has helped frame government laws. These people who say the Ten Commandments don't belong in the courthouse because of some stupid reason they come up with, a separation between church and state. They don't understand that to begin with. If you would just look, our laws are framed by the very laws of God. That's where they come from. That's what religion is good for. If you want to find some good for religion, it's good for conduct in every culture. It'll shape culture. You can go to the darkest part of Africa and they're worshiping something. It might be a stick, it might be a stone, might be a snake, but they're worshiping it and that worship determines their behavior and their conduct and it determines their laws. It's all tied together. It is inherent within us, however, and this is the problem, that if we obey all those laws of religion, that somehow that will justify us. And that we can be right with God that is the downfall it can't work that way that's what he's trying to point out I wonder how many of you here in this auditorium were members of a church thought you were saved until at some point in your walk in your journey you finally met Christ and now you look at the difference in your life I raise my hand first is there anybody else in here that's had that experience every service has been exactly the same way you see we know exactly what he's talking about Religion's for anybody. It's for the the, the weak-minded can go there because it's for the immature. You come of age at salvation, and that's when you put away childish things. That's when you learn not to walk by your flesh and by your feelings. You learn to walk by faith in the living Lord God and faith in His Word. You trust Him and Him alone. But the Galatians had walked back under that old immaturity. I'll never forget the time it happened in my life I thought I was saved. I was in the ministry. <laughs> That's kind of good to have saved ministers, but I was in youth work, 17 years. Thought I was saved. It's, you know Back then, you didn't have to be saved to be a youth guy. I just know how to play game. And finally, God brought me to the end of myself. And I remember bowing before him, and he showed me the ugliness of my flesh. And I cried for two hours till my nose bled when I finally saw the difference of being convinced I had sinned and convicted I'm a sinner. That's what he's talking about. People that are in religion are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. And and I guarantee you, it's something that is for the immature. That's what Paul is saying. But people that have been born from above have entered through the rite of passage. They've walked into adulthood. Now they've been taught to walk by faith. Stand on what God says. And don't let the feelings get in your way. You just walk saying yes to Him. Well, salvation is becoming of age spiritually. There comes a time, in 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 the comparison here, A date that is set by the Father. Boy, I love that. People talk about seekers in our day and time, and I want to tell you something. Nowhere in Scripture do you find that. Isaiah said there are none who seeks after God. It is never the creation seeking after the Creator. It's the Creator seeking after the creation. And He sets the date and the time. He knows that moment in that hour. He already knows that when we're going to enter into spiritual adulthood, when we are finally born from above. He knows that. We don't know that. Sometimes it's at six years old. Sometimes it's at 60 years old. Who knows? God knows that hour. I remember my brother-in-law who didn't get saved for years and would laugh at me when I'd say the blessing, but he he was a very good man, a very moral man, Finally, God saved him. And you know what he told me? He says, Wayne, God had a time. God had a time. I didn't know when that time was. And he's as different today as night and day. It's beautiful to see the change that comes in somebody's life. That's what Paul is saying. There comes a time in everybody's life. Children are those under religion and under law. But at some time, at a date set by the Father, He finds us. And at that moment, we, we receive Jesus into our hearts. We enter the rite of passage. We become sons of God, baptized into His Spirit. We belong to God. And that's when salvation takes place. But there's a second thought here. Oh, this gets exciting. Not only is the date set by the Father that we enter spiritual adulthood, just like in their culture, in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense, not only is the date set by the Father. But also the time of Jesus who came to this earth was that date was also set by the Father many people don't understand why it took God so long to send Jesus to this earth and they think it was a knee-jerk reaction to the bad situation on earth or whatever oh no God times nothing to God God is a very purposeful God and it was at the exact moment in history when Jesus came to this earth he's the completion of of all that has been promised. He's gonna say in a moment, it was in the fullness of time that Jesus came. You realize what Paul's doing here? He's trying to bring the Galatians back to understanding who they are and whose they are, what they have in Christ, to show that even though we haven't arrived, we can still walk in the mature privileges of sons. Why would you want to go back and do something so stupid, he tells them, and get back up under a religious system that only pleases the flesh? That's the comparison he's drawing. Well, The final point this morning, we've seen the comparison and the connection, the spiritual connection, but I want to show you the completion. When does it all consummate? When did it all finally come together? Well, he says in verse 4 through 7, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law and that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Oh, let's just walk through this very carefully the sonship that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ which came at the moment of salvation was only made possible by Jesus coming to this earth that's that's what he's trying to bring out not until then but it was at a fulfilled time it was at a date that was set by the father even the, the most righteous of the of the Old Testament prophets the, the ones that trusted and looked forward to the coming of Christ in Hebrews 11:39 it says, "And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us." I want to show you something here. When we choose to do things our own way, when we choose to live out of our feelings, when we choose to live out of our own agenda, we have slapped the prophets right in the face. They didn't get to live in the day that we're living in. We're living in the fulfillment of the new covenant. We're living in a time when we've been made sons of God and we can walk by faith and that Christ lives within us. And he's trying to make a comparison here and saying, you're going to go back up under that old religious garbage? Is that what you're going to do? But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The word fullness of time is the word pleroma. Pleroma is the word that means when something has finally been made complete. God had the exact hour. He had the exact date. I think about the period of time from Malachi to Matthew. 400 years of silence. God withdrew his presence from the temple. He was so upset with the behavior of Israel. And he just withdrew his presence. And for 400 years, it's called the period of darkness. And during those 400 years, he did not break the silence whatsoever. But it says in Hebrews, and finally, he broke the silence. He spoke in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He broke the darkness. He broke the silence. And Jesus was born of a virgin. It was at a specific point in time in the fullness of time, at the exact moment in time. It's kind of like an alarm clock that goes off. I don't know about you, but every night I set my alarm clock. I don't like doing that because I don't like the way it disturbs me in the morning. And I usually set it for 6.30 or 7 o'clock. And I go to sleep, and I'm not even aware that that alarm clock is in the world. I'm somewhere in my dream shooting an elk, and I I don't even think about that alarm clock. But I tell you what, when it gets around 7 o'clock and that thing goes off, Man, the first thing I want to do is rip it out of the wall and throw it as far as I can. Why are you making that much noise? Because you said it, Wayne. God said it, and at a certain time, it went off. God knew exactly the right moment. He knew when that was going to happen. But when the fullness of time came, Jesus, or God rather, sent forth his son. Now, see, Jesus is that seed promised to Abraham. In him are all the promises of salvation. And he finally came to this earth, the fullness of time. Since the Babylonian captivity, the Jews had turned back to God, they never went back to that idolatry. The pain of disobedience had been too great. The Perfect time for him to come. Ezra, when Ezra read the law at Watergate and the people repented, I mean it was a tremendous revival that came about. They didn't have to, they didn't have to worry about going back to idolatry again, buddy. They're not going to do that. The Greek culture had been established by Alexander the Great when Jesus came. Greek was the main language of, well actually the second language of everybody that lived on the face of this earth. Greek is the most exact language that has ever been given in any language. It was the perfect time for Jesus to come. Nobody could misunderstand the things that God wanted to tell them the Roman Empire had established a peace that allowed people to travel freely on the road so that they could take the message of the gospel here and there and nobody would hinder them it was at the perfect time that Jesus came the time was right when the fullness of time came when everything was completed that God needed to complete then God sent forth his son born of a woman Now, that term born of a woman is not to point to the fact that he's born of a virgin. Yes, he was, but that's not his point here. What he's trying to say is he was fully man and he was fully God. He had to be fully God for the sacrifice to atone for man's sin. Had he not been fully God, then it would have just been a good man that died on the cross. But he also had to be fully man in order to represent all of us, Jew and Gentile. That's what he came for, to die for our sin. To become our elder brother, he had to be born of a woman. So he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now watch, born under the law. The law that held everybody prisoner. He was born under that law, like every other man. And like every other Jew, he was under obligation to obey and be judged by the conformity, his own conformity to the, to the law that God had given but unlike every other jew he completely satisfied the requirements of the law he fulfilled every single one of them he dotted every i he crossed every t because he lived in perfect obedience as the god man he was able to redeem all of us from being shut up under sin from being in bondage to sin up under the law it says in verse 5, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And the word for redeem, oh, it's such a beautiful word. It's I'll try to say it. ekagorazo. You try it. Ekagorazo. It means to pay a ransom to secure somebody's freedom. In other words, you can see a person on a slave block, and he's chained, and he's got a big old chain and ball on his his foot, and he can't go anywhere. And a man comes along and says, whoa, 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 I want to pay that man's debt. And he goes over and unleashes the chains and and sets the man free. That's what he came to do for you and I. His death on the cross atoned for us and set us free. You ever thought about that? There's a hymn that, that they sing in many churches that I learned. It took me a long time to learn it. I hadn't heard it, I grew up and I didn't hear this song. I went to a seminary in Asbury, Kentucky and they were singing this song one day. The professor was as he walked into the classroom and I like to froze to death when I heard it. It was the most beautiful thing. I mean, I had goosebumps that you couldn't even see my nose on my face, it was beautiful. I'd never heard a song any better than this. And it's, and can it be, and listen to this, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And listen to this verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, didst die for me? Let me ask you a question. Does this motivate you during the week? Do you stop sometime and tears flood your eyes when you realize that Jesus came at the perfect time, that Jesus came to die on the cross to take your sin upon himself, and then he wants to come to live in you? He sets you free from the bondage that all of us have to the law. It's condemnation, it's control. You know what I think is going on in our generation? We've lost the wonder of our salvation. We've lost it all. I tell you more than that, we've lost the joy of our salvation. That's what's wrong with us. I tell you, I've done it myself. Just recently, man, I, I've had to ask God to bring back the joy of my salvation. I tell you what, being in the pastorate is like being the center of a bullseye and a target. I don't know if you ever saw that far side cartoon when it said the guy the deer had that big target on him. He said, boy, that's a bummer of a birthmark, you know. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. It's amazing to me how quickly I can get my eyes off of Jesus and I can put my eyes on the circumstance I can listen to the criticism and not even see what God's doing in the midst of it and I have to have the joy of my salvation brought back what's wrong with us this is truth this is truth that ought to literally literally motivate us until the day Jesus comes back but we sit and we snore and we look at our watch and we say um." ho-hum exactly what's wrong with us that's what's wrong the Galatian Church It wasn't good enough anymore. They wanted to go back to that old system. They'd like to be babies again. Let's go back in the nursery. Let's play around with our feelings. Let's just get our way. You know, let's hold people hostage so we can get our own agenda accomplished. That's Galatia. And Paul's trying to put up next to it the beauty, the beauty of being a son of the living God. Living in the mature privileges of God simply by walking by faith and trusting word for redeem, as we said, means to purchase somebody off the slave block. The word for adoption is the word we've already seen, eothesia, sonship. But it also meant to be brought into a family to which you're not naturally born. To be adopted into a family. Christ came for at least two reasons that Paul very clearly states. One, to release us from the law, from the bondage. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole Mosaic system and all religions, no matter what they are. But secondly to secure for believers the rights of sonship which was promised to Abraham and to his seed he came to accomplish that and it's in Christ that we receive it we receive it by faith verse 5 again in order that he might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons when Christ puts faith in when, when, when a person puts their faith into Christ Jesus to be their Lord he is purchased off the slave block of sin And he's immediately made a son of God. He's adopted into the family of God. And verse 6 is going to show us how precious this is. Religion does not offer this. Only Christ offers it. And because you are sons, he said, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. And look at this. Crying, Abba, Father. Now, first of all, he clarifies who the Holy Spirit is. He's the spirit of his son. It's interesting to me how many people think you receive the Lord Jesus as salvation, later on you have to get the Holy Spirit. No way, no way. They're not three gods, it's one God and three persons. You receive Jesus, he, and His Spirit comes to live in you. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse nine, 8 and 9, or actually 9 and 10, clarify that. It says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He calls him the Spirit of God. He calls him the Spirit of Christ. He's the Holy Spirit that comes to live in us. But what is it that the Spirit does in this context? And this is what blesses me. Taking the whole message, get it right here. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit of God is to enable the believer to cry out to the Father and to understand the tenderness and sensitivity the Father has to his children. It's a beautiful picture here. The Spirit enables us to cry out to the Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for daddy or papa. It's that tender little word that a child knows. A child doesn't have any trouble with this at all. Adults, yes we do. We don't think of it in that light. I love it, matter of fact, when my son, who's now 30, calls me daddy he does that every now and then sometimes it's dad that's kind of hard but boy, when he's tender and when he's hurting he calls our house (laughs) he says daddy can I talk to you that grabs my heart I don't know about you but that grabs my heart that's what you know what Paul is saying here Paul is saying the law when you fail will condemn you you want law go ahead help yourself if you want the relationship and walk in the maturity of the sonship of God, of trusting him, when you fail God, he doesn't condemn you. He forgives you. Why? Because he went to the cross to pay your sin debt. So when you cry out, Abba, Father, in the midst of your failure, and it's the most beautiful truth here, and I think he's trying to begin to plant seeds for the Galatians. They have failed. They have gone back to the law. But if they'll run back to the Father and cry out, Abba, Father, he hears their cry. Diana's younger sister Mary has adopted four children, she and Scott, and they're the most precious children. We love them as if they were their own. I'm not not so sure we don't love them more. One of them is a little Caucasian boy named Nathan. He's tall, slender, and three of them are biracial. That's not real popular in the South. Three of them are biracial. Justin is the oldest boy. Man, he's a big boy. He's gonna be something else. His feet are as big as mine are just almost already he's about 13 years old He's got big old hands Nathan's tall precious children when I did my camp in Tennessee a few weeks ago we decided this year Diane and I did we need to get those boys to camp they've never been to one I've been doing this camp for 20 some years so we made sure they got to this camp it was so precious man they got excited about everything I mean, they got excited over Diet coke I mean it was just wonderful to be at camp and they listened to the word matter of fact Nathan was so sweet he said he said Uncle Wayne, he said, I took so many notes on you, I had to calm myself down. (laughs) I I still hadn't figured that one out. But anyway, it was just really precious. But when Mom and Daddy, Mary and Scott, drove up to pick them up, those boys' eyes lit up like saucers, man. They were so excited to see their mother and father, and they went run into the car. And the most precious thing—they're in a family they were not naturally born into. They were adopted into this family. But when they went run into mom and daddy, that's exactly what they said: "Mama, daddy," and they hugged their necks in that tender, intimate relationship that they had. That's what Paul said. You want religion? Is that what you want? You want to throw away the fact that you have an intimacy with the Father? You want to throw away the privileges you have as adult sons living in Jesus Christ? You want to stop walking by faith? Would you rather lose the joy of your salvation and go do it yourself? Do you want to go back to the most immature thing you could possibly come up with, which is called religion? Or do you want the maturity of walking in a relationship? That's your difference. That's your difference. That's why some people that are believers don't have a clue what we're talking about. They're religious and have never been willing to enter the relationship by faith. Colossians 2, 6. As you therefore have received him by faith, so walk ye in him. Same way you walk in him after you receive him. No difference. This is his point. Then in verse 7, he finishes it up. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. He doesn't say you're no longer a child. Some people try to use this and say, well, some Christians are children. Some Christians are sons. No, it's not what he's saying. He said, you're no longer a slave, bound to the law, condemned by it. He said, but you're a son. And he's reminding them of who they are. And then he says, and if a son, then an heir through God. Do you know how helpful this is in our Christian walk? My daughter has the ability to remind me who I am as much as anybody that lives on the face of this earth. Between my daughter and Diana and the Holy Spirit, I'm going to get there. I've had to tell him from time to time. There's no vacancy in the Trinity. I'm sorry. He's not going to. But it's awesome how, they, how God uses my daughter and my wife. Particularly. Stephanie, one time in a, in a time when I was just frustrated. You don't get that way, I know. Steam coming out my ears. Man, I'm ready to whip somebody. And Stephanie, where'd she come from? Walked up to me and put her little sweet arm around me. She says, now, Daddy, remember... Who lives in you. Get away from me, devil. Just go away. Just go away, will you? That's what Paul's doing in Galatians. He's trying to gently remind them of who they are. Stop living as children, he said. Stop living as children and walk in the adult privileges of sonship. But if you get under religion, that's your flesh. That's all it is. And that's what he's warning them against. And the division they brought in the churches in Galatia was incredible. And you'll see it as it comes up in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. He's painting, his, he's laying his foundation right here. For additional resources or to view our TV program, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.